You ready to kick this off, Imam? Yeah, so should I look at you or just look straight? No, you could look at me because it's uh, the angle is coming at you from the side. So okay. uh, whichever way is fine. You can, right. yeah. Time. How's your Jummah going? Alhamdulillah, Jummah is going well by the grace of Allah. Alhamdulillah, when I, when I came in, by the way, they told me, talk to Amir Muhammad uh, Turai. And I was like, oh, Amir, mashallah, I haven't heard that title for a measured coordinator before. Uh, so Amir. so when, when I pulled up, I said, where's your Amir? And they knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Everyone knows the Amir. Yeah, and he said, oh, yeah, he's inside. Just go up to him. Uh, so I, I thought that would throw him off, but it didn't. The parking brother, you know. But alhamdulillah, how's it going with you? How's your... Alhamdulillah, Allah is Rahim and Kareem and everything in between. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. I, I actually, I wanted to go deep into your life and, and everything that you've done, mashallah, uh, over the course of your life. But that's going to require like a three-hour podcast. And you didn't give me that much time, but that's okay. We can uh, see what we can run through in an hour. And then inshallah, maybe I'll have another invite. Inshallah, inshallah. I appreciate Barakal it. Uh, so, Sheikh, I just want to start with asking why you're in New Haven. Because last I checked, you were running Zaytuna Institute with Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. So yeah. what brought you here? You know, I'm still involved there, but, you know, I'm 65. That's retirement mm -hmm. age. So, you know, I've, I've scaled back, uh, but I go out uh, once a semester to California. All of my nice. family's here. So we have, you know, young kids, young athletes that help train and, you know, orient. Because uh, my whole adult, entire adult life, I've been pretty much away from my family. And this mm. is the last shot, you know, we got these little youngsters. And so after them, that's it. So I got you. Spend a little time with family. Okay. And, uh, also, yeah, just trying to do some writing and put myself pos in position to do some writing. So I hear you. Yeah. Mashallah. Okay, so that's actually kind of related to the, the topic I wanted to discuss with you today. And uh, that's the responsibilities of the American Muslim. Uh, and so what I wanted to ask you about, and you, you can probably fill up the, the rest of the time just answering this question, but um, I wanted to ask you, what you envision are the responsibilities and goals of the American Muslim and then also the, by extension, the American Muslim community. And we can, we can start just with post-grad because you can't really affect any change as a, you know, as a kid. And then you're, you're, busy with, you're busy with high school, then you got college, and then you graduate. And then you're saddled with debt, so you have to pay off the debt. And then once you pay off the debt, you got to get married. Then you, then you get married and you have the responsibilities of the man to his wife and the wife to her, to, to her husband. But what's beyond that? You know what I mean? Well, I, I like to reframe it. Uh, first of all, a child can make a tremendous difference mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, our children are sc scattered, dispersed throughout neighborhoods and communities. And you make friends, you never know where those friends are going to end up. And so if they remember you as a Muslim, oh, yeah, my Muslim friend, he would always stop to pray. Mm. You know, his mom would call him in. It's prayer time. And, you know, you can leave an indelible imprint on someone's life as a child. So I, I would say, like, even encouraging our children, uh, number one, to, to have friends within reasonable limits because there are a lot of negative influences that the average person who's not a Muslim uh, might bring into a Muslim child's life. But with, with proper supervision and surveillance, to be involved in our communities and children, like I said, you never know. I know kids that I grew up with now. Uh, one of my friends, we all grew up in public housing, but one mm. is a, he's a PhD in nuclear medicine working right. in Japan. You know, uh, another was working at NIH. He, di he died early, unfortunately. You know, uh, one is superintendent of schools here in New Haven. So, you know, and so I can make phone calls if I need things from the school system, if I need to, to talk to someone or reference someone who's high up in uh, really the medical profession, etc. There are people you can, you can talk to. And these are childhood friends. These are people I haven't seen in 20 to 40 years. But, mm. you know, we, we know each other. And you never, so you, you just, you never know. I hear and you. also, I think this whole, when in terms of what I uh, 
see for the American Muslim, I think the trajectory trajectory you men, you mentioned is not only wrong, but it's undermining our youth and destroying a lot of lives. And that is, you know, you go to college, you settle with debt, you work, pay off your debt, then get married. So now you're getting married, you're 30 years old. And, and so you've gone through uh, the, the peak years in terms of your sexual virility with no lawful way to express it. And so people express it unlawfully. And, right, uh, and, right. and uh, the, the girls, you know, the, the, when you do get married, you marry a non-Muslim, someone from back in your home country, or uh, e now I hear even Muslim guys marrying Hindu girls and all this kind of stuff. And so now a lot of girls are old. They're, they're pushing 30. And now, oh, they're too old for marriage. And you have a whole almost generation of girls who aren't married. So I think it, it should be like, you know, you finish high school and you do a year or two of college, you get married, your parents help you out and you build a life and then you continue whatever you're going to do. And yeah. I know many people are doing that and they're quite successful. And they've been spared a lot of the fitna, the tribulation and being in a position to make bad decisions concerning their life. So I, I would question that trajectory that you laid out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I actually didn't intend for marriage to happen. At th what I was thinking in terms of paying <clears throat> off debt is that it would take a few years. Obviously, if someone has a ton of debt, it won't be a few years. So, uh, that, I, know, I, I mean, that totally makes sense. You don't want to put it off till 30. That would mm -hmm. suck. Um, but j so just stepping past that, you graduated. Okay. Let's say you're married. Okay. Right, you have kids. Yeah. And so you want to find out the you know your responsibilities towards your wife and your children. You need to put a roof over your head. You need to take care of them, clothe them, feed them, all that good stuff. But what's beyond that? I think what's before that is you make a commitment to Allah, His Messenger, and the, and His religion. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that way, while you you you're balancing things, your your number one priority is making sure that your family is are strong practicing Muslims. Mm -hmm. And if that requires paying off the debt a little more slowly, it requires that because I'm not working this, extra, I'm not getting this job that's going to put me on salary but going to demand all of my time. And when I come home, I'm too exhausted to give any time, quality time to my wife or my children. I'm, I'm too exhausted and just don't have the time to be involved in, in helping to raise my, my children. I don't have time to be a meaningful role model for my, my sons if, if you're a, a guy. Yeah. Because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're always at work. And so you're making money. They, they, don't, they don't realize you're doing all this to put a roof over their head. All they know, you're not there. Yeah. And as a result, they, they really don't see you as their number, number one role model. So I think the most important thing is to commit to the religion and then build our lives around that as opposed to committing to a career and then building our lives around that career. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying abandon career aspirations, but build the career around the religious life. And if that means making less money, if that means paying off the debt accumulated in college, med school, graduate school, whatever the case might be, then so be it. Because it. We're, we're going to be answer, we're answerable to how we, uh, for, for our children. Okay, so, so what I hear you saying, I think, is that your number one commitment as a Muslim, is towards your family. Is that right? Your, your number one commitment is to Allah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Stuff Allah, of course. In, in a meaningful yeah. way. No, no, you're, yeah. it's legitimate what you're saying. but And because for a lot of people, that could be nominal. Oh, yeah, I'm committed to Allah first and foremost, but that commitment doesn't translate into making life decisions that prioritize the commitment to Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm -hmm. and, and so... Uh, when I'm committed to Allah first and foremost, I'm going to try to marry a righteous uh, woman if I'm a guy. I'm mm -hmm. trying to marry a righteous guy if I'm a girl. And uh, because I, in my commitment to Allah, I, under, I understand I could, if I get this beautiful trophy wife that I could show off, 
but she's not committed to the dean, that's going to, number one, it's going to erode my dean over time. Right. And it's not going to be the optimal sister w- situation for my children. So a woman's married for four things, for her wealth, for her beauty, for her status, for her deen. Take the one with deen. May your hand be covered with dust. Mm. And usually the one with Dean, she has, she's beautiful anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> I got you. So, okay, so obviously number one is And so that, so what I'm saying, like, that informs everything. So mm-hmm. say I'm committed to Allah, but I'm going to pass up this good, pious, religious sister. Mm. So I'm beauty, she's not in my top five. She's number seven. Uh-huh. But she's, you know, uh-huh. she's all right. But no, I'm going to ignore her, even though she's a very pious woman. And I'm going for number one on my beauty list. I'm going for number one on my status list. I'm going for number one on my money list. Yeah, she's, she's loaded, you know. Mm. She's been working a few years. She had a startup. She sold her startup. She's only 25, and she's a millionaire. So, you know, I could take it easy. I could just put it on cruise control with her. That's not a bad deal to me. <laughs> yeah, but, but she has no dean. And so that's a bad deal. That's okay. We can fix dean. We can Al-mar- work on it. Al-mar-u, you can, but you might not. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's possible. They say, minan mumkinat. Uh-huh. It's possible, but it, it, it might not happen. And now what happens? Al-mar'u ala dina khalilihi. A person is on the dean of their companion. Your wife is your closest companion. Fanzur man Yani consider well the company you keep. So mm-hmm. so over time, you know, she's she's that's not a that's not a bad deal, but she's chiseling well on your dean. Right. You know, oh, what's wrong with watching this program? I know it's a little nudity, but we don't do it every day. She's chiseling away. <laughs> You know, what's wrong with going to the Christmas party? You know, these are the people that helped me. They were my partners, and they helped build the startup. And now we're doing this new thing. You know, she's chiseling away. Yeah. Chiseling away and not strengthening you and helping you to be strong when every other thing out there is chiseling away at your dean. But she's your bedrock. So she's the one that patches up those little chips. She brings in and puts some super glue on it and puts it back on. I so, you. Uh, you know, so that's all I'm saying. Like, not a nominal commitment to Allah, but a commitment to Allah that translates into making decisions that reflect that this is a true commitment to Allah. Mm. Because those decisions I make consider that this is pleasing to Allah and this is something that's going to help me in my deen, even if it might apparently uh, lessen my dunya. Got it. Okay, so <clears throat> you have a job. You found a righteous wife. What happens next? Inshallah, Allah will bless you with children. And then you make a commitment uh, to those children. And again, that's a decision. That commitment might mo- mean, you know, I, I have this job. And let me see if they're willing to trans- tr- uh, transfer me to somewhere where there's a strong, viable mu- uh, Muslim community. I mm. have this job. I have this pious wife. And I'm here in the middle of nowhere, and there's two Muslim families in town. And so, and I'm thinking f- four, five, six years from now, who are my children going to have for their friends and be mm-hmm. able to play with? What kind of uh, Islamic reinforcement are they going to get from their, from their peers and from their, their, their chums and their buddies? And so, uh, again, uh, you have the job, you have the wife. It's... And now, if you get children, after three or four years, you're established on the job. Now they're at the age where, you know, uh, sociability becomes very important. Mm. Like how many kids are in depression during the virus these last two years and counting because their social connection, school went online, uh, and they didn't have that contact. You don't send them to their little t-ball baseball league anymore because you're worried about the virus and now they're at home depressed and the older ones are suicidal Mm. and so companionship 
is very important for children. We're social animals. And so uh, now when I'm faced, now children are three or four, five years old, have to start school. There's no Muslim school or even public schools with significant numbers of Muslims in them. There are no Muslims in town. So now uh, I have to make a decision. Am I right. going to migrate for the sake of Allah and my family and my children, or I'm going to stay here and keep making money and just take a crapshoot with my children? I guarantee you there are a lot of parents who said, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to keep making money, and they regret it now. The girls are coming home. They sent them off to college with a green hijab. They came back with no hijab and green hair and say <laughs> they want to marry their girlfriend. And this uh -huh. is happening every day in our community. And the parents are filled with remorse and, and deep sadness. But they made decisions that pointed toward that particular outcome. Right. Right. Okay, so they have... A they have a, a righteous wife and a job. They should move to a community that is going to build... If, if they're not situated in... Right, right, for sure. So they go to a Muslim community. Their their kids are in a Muslim school or a public school with a lot of Muslims. Basically, they're, they're in good hands. What happens next? What happens next is they work to help to strengthen that community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a complaint we hear that uh, now that a lot of millennials are entering their prime earning years, they're not spending like their parents did. Mm. Their parents built all these masajid, these schools, Islamic centers, and now I take that baton from my parents or my grandparents, and I pick that baton and I run with it. I start spending significant percentage of my income on these Muslim institutions. I start looking to elevate these institutions so mm. that now we're beyond, okay, we have the elementary schools. Now I start working to help uh, create endowments mm. uh, for these schools. I help to strengthen our, our nation colleges that are emerging. And so- well, When I, you say college, are you saying a Muslim college? Absolutely. Okay. I think um, uh, every every religious, the Catholics have thousands of colleges and universities in this country, starting with Notre Dame and the Loyolas, Loyola Chicago, Loyola, Loyola uh, Marymount, close to L.A., Loyola New Orleans, mm. and St. Saint, Saint this, that, and the other. So but when St. you say Benedictine college— St. Benedictine in Chicago, it's, yeah. it's a majority Muslim student body. Right. Are you referring to graduate and undergraduate? Like uh, you start with, you definitely start with undergraduate. Okay. And then you move up. Zaytona College, we have an undergraduate program. Now we have a master's program. Inshallah, we have a PhD program. Mashallah. So the, the point is, I didn't mean to plug Zaytona College, <laughs> but it was an opportunity <laughs> no, no, to go plug ahead. Zaytona uh -huh. College. But the point is, we shouldn't have one or two colleges. They, they shouldn't be underfunded. Uh, we should have colleges, like the Buddhists have three or four universities. Mm. They have Naropa University. You know, the, the, we're, we're larger than the Seventh-day Adventists. They, mm. The Seventh-day Adventists have, uh, in Southern, uh, Southern California, uh, what's that? Major, Loma Linda, Loma Linda University. It has a medical school and a dental school. Oh, wow. My dentist, uh, Dr. Muhammad, graduated from that dental college. And so as, as a community that's m mature, has been here long enough to be mature, uh, we have to now begin investing in establishing higher-level universities, quality think tanks, like a lot of the issues that some I touched on, mm. we should have <clears throat> really developed position papers that are well thought out by uh, qualified professionals in various fields of endeavor to to address those issues. Like uh, we, uh, as opposed to individual efforts, like someone like uh, uh, Mubin Vaid, mm. who recently wrote a very deep. Uh, analysis and an assessment on the relation between the Muslims and the whole LGBTQI plus movement. Mm -hmm. Extremely insightful. He shouldn't be just a lone author. He should have the power of a think tank 
where that's all he does. I don't know. Maybe he's working nine to five yeah. in IT or something, and then he's doing his research and writing in the evening. He should be working nine to five at that think tank right. with the support of the community to address burning issues. So we need think tanks. We need colleges. We need, we need universities. We need quality uh, uh, elementary schools. We need sporting programs. How many Muslim schools even have a sporting program? And we have talented Muslim athletes who, and, and that's something that could not only give them a sense of normalcy. Uh, oh, I could be a Muslim basketball player? That's normal. As opposed to these things are Islamic over here and these things are normal over there. Mm. And so how many of our schools have sporting programs? And so the athlete and their parents see some athletic prowess and they see the potential for a D1 scholarship to a, a, a good school that they're not going to have to pay for it. So they put the child in public school because they have sporting programs. And so all of these things require a communal-wide commitment. And those in the community, like most of the elders and uncles now, they're past, they're, they're retired. They're past their prime earning. So they're not going to be the heavy lifters in terms of financing a lot of these things. It's going to fall on the younger generation who are moving into their prime earning. So as you said, they paid the debt off now. Mm. So now they're 35, paid off all the college debt, even med school debt. And now they're moving into not only they're free of those debts, they also have moving into their prime earning years. So now I make a commitment to... St step up and take on some of that financial heavy lifting that the uncles I talk about and criticize were doing. Yeah. So I think that's, that's what they do next. Got it. So what would the goal of a Muslim higher education institution be? Because it almost seems kind of isolationist to have a Muslim this, Muslim that. Like, why can't I just go to a, a, a normal dental school or medical school? Why do I need a Muslim one? Well, I, I didn't talk about medical schools and dental schools. I'd mentioned Loma Linda, but mm -hmm. number one, I think no. We, I think COVID exposed the tremendous inequities and uh, uh, ethical crisis that exists in our healthcare system. Mm. So, a Muslim one that's uh, built, functioning, operating on Muslim principles can be a model for others. Mm. Uh, but without that model, we're stuck with the status quo. We're stuck with not enough ICU beds because uh, the, the profit-loss uh, calculus we're working with dictates that the maximum number of beds is too small for the p potential maximum num number of patients because if those beds are empty when there's no COVID, then we're losing money on them. And so we're going to keep the numbers small so they're always occupied when it's not COVID with the other things. And this is opposed to what a what, what would a Muslim do in that case? I, I would say uh, just uh, just moving beyond that. Uh, the first question is how when you go to a hospital is how are you going to pay? Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, a lot of people uh, become sick because practices such as aroma. Aromatherapy. So you go and you're smelling bleach from the floors being bleached and this, that, and the other. As opposed, uh, there's no consideration of natural light and the role natural light plays in healing. So we know it's importance in vi vitamin D. And mm -hmm. we know vitamin D is one of the best things and effective things to strengthen our immune system in the course of this pandemic. And so our Muslim hospital... We, we would consider the effect of aroma. We consider the effect of color. We'll consider the, the effect of musical scales, the maqamat. And mm. so we're not uh, just having intercom. We, we have uh, music that has been developed by our Muslim doctors to heal patients. And, and we, have, we consider the role of light. And so there's natural light that's being brought into our hospital. Uh, the, we consider the role of proper bed bedside manners and what that means for a patient's well-being. And so we consider 
that healthcare and not profit is the number one consideration. I have a friend who was uh, had her career almost ruined by the Cleveland Clinic because she refused to maintain the surgical schedule they set up for her because she was a robotic surgeon and they they set this incredible uh, uh, impossible schedule up to uh, minimize the, to to hasten paying off the robot the robot so everything could be pure profit and mm. she refused because she said this is going to jeopardize my patient's well-being I'm not going to stick to this schedule and so they they tried to destroy her career wow and well, this what, what stuff did they is do happening. exactly when they, they told her she couldn't work and, anymore. No, or? that would have been that if they fired her it would have been ideal because she could have gotten another job. They kept her on salary, didn't schedule any surgeries. She went for a year without working and lost her license. Wow. And she had to go to work a year overseas to regain her license. Wow. And so these are the kind of moral and ethical situations uh, uh, that, that we find going on. And I think uh, we can we can create model institutions that can be uh, serve as alternatives uh, for our society. Mm. So w I think what I hear you saying is that we need Muslim higher education institutions to have the Muslim spin on education. I right? would say the Muslim spin, the good spin, not the bad spin. Yeah, I would say have uh, the Muslim stamp. Okay, okay, well, the Muslim stamp. So uh, <clears throat> we have a community. It's got a masjid. It's got schooling in it muslim schooling what else does that community need or should it be working towards that that community needs uh credible qualified scholars that's the mm -hmm. foundation as uh friends rosenthal the uh renowned orientalist he wrote a book called knowledge triumphant mm. and in that book he argues and makes a very strong case that islam is the first and possibly the only knowledge-based civilization in human history Civilizations were based on race, ethnicity, geography. So the Niladic civilizations are based on the Nile River Valley. So you have Kush, Nubia, and Egypt, ancient Egypt. Mm. They're all rooted in the Nile River Valley. Those civilizations never manifested themselves in the, itself in another geographical region. And, and so uh, Muslim civilization is knowledge-based. And because it's knowledge-based, it manifested itself in unique Iterations amongst the Arabs, amongst the Turkic people, amongst the Europeans in Andalusia and Bosnia and uh, other and other places in Europe. It manifests itself amongst the Central Asians. It manifests itself amongst the Malays. It manifests itself in North, West, and East Africa. So the Swahili uh, civilizations in East Africa, the North African Berber uh, Islamic uh, episodes, the uh, West African, African, Ghani, uh, Ghana, Songhai, Mali. And so uh, we have to have scholarship. The, the enslaved population in this country, there were uh, conservative estimate, 20% of the slaves were Muslims. We know one of their stories, Roots, Kunta Kinte, from, uh, this Muslim from West Africa brought here and then beaten out of his name and beaten out of his Islam. We know his story through Alex Haley, he, one of his descendants. When Alex Haley, his search for his roots ended in Jufare Island off the coast of Gambia in a Muslim village. Mm. We know the story of, Ibra, of uh, Ayub bin Suleiman. Uh, Ayub bin Suleiman, jo Job bin, uh, bin Solomon, the fortunate slave. His biography is the oldest extant work of African-American literature. We know the story of Abdurrahman. Uh, Ibrahim Abdurrahman, Natchez, Mississippi, prince amongst slaves. Uh, we know the story of Umar bin Said. So Muslims were here, it's been documented. But because there was no, there are no communities, because uh, there, were, there were no uh, learning institutions, Islam, as soon as the importation of Muslim slaves stopped with the abolition of slavery, then the Islamic presence disappeared mm. amongst the African-American people. And so knowledge is absolutely critical for the survival and perpetuation, for the prospering and perpetuation of Muslim communities. So we need credible scholars 
to guide and provide spiritual leadership. At the end of the day, we're a spiritual community. We're not a purely political community. Politics right. is part of our religion, but the core of our existence is we are a spiritual community. Therefore, we need spiritual leadership and guidance. And so scholars are absolutely uh, essential, and we have to make sure our scholars uh, are receiving uh, compensation and salaries that allow them to be scholars. Yeah. And they're not driving taxis on the side and driving Uber on the side to be able to take care of their families. So yeah. that's what we need absolutely. And therefore we need seminaries. In, different, in addition to colleges and universities, we need seminaries that are training scholars and training scholars from a young age. So they memorize Quran. They, they memorize uh, a lot of our literary heritage. They're very conversant in our poetry. They're, they they have a, a firm grasp on, on our jurisprudence. They're and so they've, they've been nurtured. So if you take an example of Azhar, they have the Azhar Ibtida'iyya And so we have the equivalent of that. We, we The children that show inclination and promise and uh, are very... Uh, oriented towards the religion, then we help to train them from elementary school, middle school, high school, university, college level. And, and so this is absolutely essential for the uh, continued prosperity and the perpetuation of our community. So, so we're getting, we need Muslim scholars in every community. Where, where did you say we get them? We get them from the seminaries that we found? We have to, we, we have to establish our seminaries and training schools and madatis. Absolutely. No one else is going to do it. Okay, so you're not a fan of sending them overseas like you did when you studied in Syria. Well, we need our own because, mm. you know, that was a phase in the development of the community. And that was the only option we have. But that is not a sustainable model, even mm. based on the politics. Some of us studied in Syria. Syria's gone. Yeah. Can't do that anymore. Some of us studied in Yemen with the Habaib. Yemen's gone. Can't mm. do that anymore. You know, some of us studied in Egypt. Uh, Egypt, alhamdulillah, but it's, it's, it's shaky. Mm. You know, if you, 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 get, uh, you can draw a lot of suspicion being a foreign student of religion uh, in, in Egypt right now. And so the, the options, they, they shrink and shrink. And that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have now generations here. This is their land. This is their culture. This is their language. And so we need scholars who are not only conversant in the religion, but also conversant in the cultural currents and the intellectual currents that are shaping our society so that our religious scholars can address issues of relevance in the language and, 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 and at, at a level that's required for their voice to be meaningful mm. and to contribute to the overall discourse surrounding religious, social, cultural events here in this country. Right. Okay. So if I'll give you an example. Ahead. How many really high-level scholars come from overseas? I mean... PhDs and then studied 20, 30 years with uh, the highest mashaykh in their land. And we have them here. Yeah, it's a and handful. They're, they're, let's say even if there were more than a handful, they're absolutely irrelevant in terms of affecting uh, popular, social, cultural, political, religious discourse here in this country. Mm. Irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So And so we need people that attain a high level here but also are studying and growing and understanding with the generation they're going to be serving and, and i think this is the the orf component that you're referring to that uh, they need to know the customs uh, absolutely <laughs> so what does that mean custom to? custom convention earth has legal consideration legal weight mm. um, and so they know like this is acceptable earth. So we shouldn't be beating our young people up because, you know, 
they're dressed like you're dressed or mm. just modestly a little looser so the <laughs> biceps aren't as visible. I'm sorry. Are you, I now you're some. still trying to get that wife. So it's no, like, no, yeah, it's a... Sister, which way? Kids, you you uh, know what it is? Well, it's the layers <laughs> that make it look tighter. I know, I haven't Because I'm in New Haven. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just kidding you. But, uh, but, you know, there's nothing... We should have Western dress. Mm -hmm. uh, but it conforms to our Islamic standards of modesty. So you don't necessarily, and probably shouldn't, it will be inappropriate for you to be running around in your daily life in a jandabiya or in a thobe and or a shawal khamis or yeah, yeah. some other or Kurdish baggy pants with a big wide waist wrapper. But if I do wear that, do I get baraka, Sheikh? Do I get some sort of hasanat? Uh, no, you don't. Uh, no, you don't. Not at all. Unfortunately, even if I wear the kufi and the you turban, you might on ceremonial occasions or occasionally for Eid, where the the dress of whatever your parents' land is. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of uh, what should be the norm for us, and what should we find condemnable, uh, we have to be very uh, keen. To understanding what's going on I hear in you. our culture. Okay, so you like need this. See, this, this is long, but this is totally Western. You know, yeah, you're wearing Western a suit today. It's a suit, but look how long it is. And it's very modest, uh, inshallah. Yeah, it's this is an overcoat. Yeah, it's it's a thin coat. It's not an overcoat. Okay. A Chinese collar. It's uh -huh. Chinese, you know. So we're blending the cultures. Uh, but in a way, if I walk down the street, someone might say, man, you, where could I get one of those? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I hear you. Okay. Mashallah. So, <laughs> so you're saying that we need homegrown scholars. <laughs> Absolutely. So that they understand. Not every land. Mm. Like we have different people. We have Turks. You go to Tur Turkey. Who are the imams in the masjid? Turks. Right. Who are giving the fatawa? Turkish mufti, muftis. Not Arab muftis. Right. You know, you, you you go to to Egypt. Who's who are the imams? Egyptian. Mm -hmm. Who are giving the fatawa? Egyptian muftis. Not even Saudi Arabian muftis. Egyptian muf muftis. Yeah. You go to Tunisia. You don't have Algerian. You have Tunisian imams. You go to Morocco. You have Moroccan imams. You go to Senegal. You have Senegalese imams and Senegalese. Muftis and Senegalese Shuyukh. You go to Mali, they're from they're local. So Senegal then might be Mandinka. Uh, uh, or Gambia, Mandinka. If you go to, to Mali, the Bambara. Mm. Uh, so you go to Nigeria, the Hausa, Fulani. Yeah, what are these words? And you the go to Senegal, Wolof. These are tribes. Wolof. Oh, okay. Wolof and Mandinka in Senegal. And some also some Fulani in mm. eastern, southern parts of Senegal. Fulani, Mandinka, Wolof. You go to Nigeria, Hausa, Fulani, and uh, uh, Yoruba. Mm. Uh, my friend Ibrahim Osiafa, Yoruba Muslim. And so you find not only the national realities but tribal realities reflected in who's leading the people you go to kurdistan the kurd is the iraqi kurd syrian kurd turkish kurd the imams are kurdish mm. you know that's the reality iran iraq you have different countries iran kurdistan iraq kurdistan and it was divided up like that for a reason to weaken it Iraq, Kurdistan, Iran, Kurdistan, Syrian, Kurdistan, Turkey, Kurdistan. All of them, the Imams, the Shiyukh are Kurdish. Mashallah. You go to Iran, they're Iranian. They speak Persian and uh, Farsi. You go to Afghanistan, they're Tajik, Uzbek, uh, and uh, uh, Pashtun. And in each of those areas, you don't find the Tajik Imam in uh, the land of the Pashtun. You don't find the Pashtun Imam in the land of the Uzbeks. They reflect their local, cultural, and uh, tribal realities. And in America, we have all that. In America, we have all that, but the overriding cultural consideration 
of the Muslims, especially the younger Muslims, and now most older Muslims, because now you're working on a third generation. Uh, your par parents came here. Which, where did they come from? Uh, from Syria. From Syria. Yeah. Okay. And Osana. And Tunisia. So how long have they been here? Just ballpark. Uh, since the 80s. Okay. So they're here long enough to be truly called Americans. They're, they've been here over three decades. Yeah. Now you're 100% American. Right. You have Tunisian, Syrian roots, which you should acknowledge and hold on to, but in terms of your cultural influences, probably you prefer pizza out of, over many Syrian dishes. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you don't eat... Well, not eat pizza, but, you know, yeah, something like a burger, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, a burger. Yeah. <laughs> something a steak, something totally, like that. Totally American uh -huh. over couscous. Well, couscous is pretty good, actually. It is good, but... If you if you were just on the fly, you have no discomfort with the burger. Yeah, yeah. And for sure. couscous is the treat. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in if you were in Tunisia, couscous would be the norm, and the burger would be the treat. Yeah, exactly. And they got this burger shop down there, so let's go try that. Yeah. So you're American. You know, you probably would prefer to watch American football or basketball as opposed to soccer. Uh, I don't know. Not, I well, like that's soccer. soccer is growing here. Yeah, yeah. That's not a good analogy. No, no, but you get you get my point. No, I, yeah, I get and what now you're your children. So your your parents are here long enough to be called American. They still might have Syrian Tunisian accent, but they're totally comfortable here. This is their home now. Wait, are we talking about who? Who are we talking about? Your parents. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Your Tunisian Syrian parents. Yep, yep. You're here now. There's no question. Now you're you're at an age where now you can start a family. Mm -hmm. So your children are now three generation American. Uh, they should have imams that reflect who they are. We got them, Imam Zaid. May Allah give us tawfiq and taysir and beyond me. Yeah, because you know I'm at the end of the line. You yeah. know I'm I'm gonna I, well uh, I'm gonna learn how to play golf. So yeah. no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know I what I'm you. saying. Yeah. But they need someone who can talk to them in their language, but also someone that's very conversant in the religion. So mm. they're not uh, being told things that are not uh, compatible with Islam as it will be recognized throughout the world. Right. And this goes back to your first question, like what do we expect or anticipate, desire, want to see? An American Muslim, I, I, first of all, I want to see Islam that's recognizable to Muslims anywhere on the face of the earth. We don't say there's an American Islam. There's an American flavor. Mm. The imams dress a certain way. You know, uh, their, their, their knowledge of certain cultural, intellectual currents is different than an imam in Malaysia or somewhere. There's overlap because there's, there's a global culture a monoculture, but yeah. there are regional, tribal distinctions. And uh, so I don't want to see an Islam where things that the Ummah would say is haram, American Muslims say are halal. Mm. You know? I, well, would that, I, I think that's happening already, right? Well, I, that's what I don't want to see, and I think that is, is very dangerous. Well, if we could pick apart an example, some people may consider absolutely haram that a woman wear a color other than black. No, no, that's that's not from our religion, and that's not a, a practice uh, that that's not that's not a practice of even Muslims in every Muslim country. You go from Muslim lands, you find different colors. Uh, you go to uh, Western Sahara, for example. Women uh, wear these very colorful sort of one-piece wraps in yeah. Mauritania also. You go to uh, Algeria. Not tr historically, the women will wear white, white niqab and a white uh, uh, ibaya. Mm. You know, that, that there, there's no hadith that says women have to wear black. That's a custom in Saudi Arabia. And so that's total misguidance for anyone to say, this is Islam. And th this is what I mean. That, but knowing, but I'll tell you what, what is haram for Muslims to be advocating as one thing, we're in a pluralistic society. People yeah. have a right to believe what they want to believe, do what they want to do, but it's not a part, it's not 
uh, fitting for Muslims to be advocating for haram. So mm. as Muslims, we recognize the right of LGBTQI plus people to do what they want to do. Neighbors, co-workers, do what you want to do. But that doesn't mean I'm waving the rainbow flag and advocating for that. Well, what if, what and, if they... and just as I wouldn't, people have a right to drink alcohol, it's haram. So we yeah. say, yani, sodom is haram. A lot of Muslims would not say that now because they, they don't want to offend anyone. Well, what, what if they're sponsoring a rally for refugee rights? And it's something and that we support we, too. Can we, we be there? We, 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 we can, the, we're there for refugee rights. What if they mm -hmm. say there's a quid pro quo? We supported your refugee right parade uh, rally. Now we want you to come to support us in uh, uh, rights of trans people and LGBTQ people. Do you go? They were at your rally. But don't we support the rights of all people to live freely? As we recognize the right of all people. Mm-hmm. We, we support the right of people to choose, but we don't actively advocate. And I'll give you, this is what I say to a lot of people who raise that question. All right. Why, why aren't you advocating for alcoholics? They're, they're, they're troubled souls. They're good people. But unfortunately, they've fallen into alcohol addiction. Mm. Why aren't you out advocating for them? Why don't you leave uh, your, your, your support for Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous to, to get them sober? But, but we say certain sexual acts are sinful, but uh, we advocate, advocate for people's right to engage in those sins. So why only that sin? And why only in the last 20, 20 years or so? Why as a community weren't we doing this before? What has changed? Our religion? And so this is a very sensitive topic. And so yeah. I don't, I, but what I'm saying, people can do what they want to do. And it's not our place to, to harm people, but to openly, actively advocate for what we know is haram. That's, that's something that uh, is recognizably not part of our religion. A person's religion being good is to leave what doesn't concern them. What a person does is not their business, is not my business. Mm. One way or the other. So we're in a pluralistic society. People can do what they want to do. I'm not going to stop them. When it comes to advocating, when it comes to uh, supporting policies that are harmful, so uh, a lot of our girls are being hurt now because uh, transgender women can compete with biological girls in sports. We just had the case of the swimmer in Pennsylvania and the, the leader of the head, the head of the swimming association resigns is not fair because this is a guy mm. who identifies as a girl but physiologically has advantages over female swimmers. And he's gonna is breaking all the records here in the state of Connecticut. The that's crazy. Three girls. Well, that's the law. That's Title Nine. Yeah. And Muslims are advocating for that. Some Muslims of our Muslims in Congress are okay. advocating for that. So about that, Muslims in politics is that. So I'm not. I'm not saying uh, what I'm saying. People can do what they want, but. It's not our place to advocate for it. I'm totally against that. I'm no, against. But, but if we step I'm outside against of that. bathroom bills. I hear you. But, but, but if we step outside of Muslim that for a second. Should, yeah, I'm against the right of biological men with male appendages to go in female bathrooms just because they identify as women. I think yeah. that's insane. Uh -huh. In many places, that's the law. Girls have been raped. Men have been sent into women's prison. You had a famous case in Britain and the guy starts raping the women. Oh my God! It's like he died and went to Jannah, <laughs> not Jannah. He died and went to paradise. The even more general. Uh -huh. So, so just a question. Just because he identified as a woman, and you, you have Muslims defending that. Yeah. So I'm saying, people can do what they want to do, but it's not our place to defend 
things that have been recognized historically by our religion to be haram. I got you. So if we just take a step back for a second and we, we go back to the goal of a Muslim, he's in his community, he established higher education institutions. Is the next step politics? Is that where he should go? Or do you... We, we, should, have, we should have people that we groom to go into politics. Grooming okay. meaning we identify a talent and a, a desire, charisma at a young age is something they're really attracted to. We help to finance their education. Mm. We help to put them through law school. That's the number one breeding ground for politicians in our country. Uh, we support their campaigns, but we also give them a solid Islamic a Muslim education so they know their religion. And when they go into the, those spaces, they know where to draw the line. They know where yeah. the limits lie. And they know what kind of coalitions to build profitably. I hear you. Um, so what would the goal of a Muslim in American politics be? Some right-wing conspiracy theorists say that Muslims in politics have one goal in mind. And that's to implement Sharia law in the country. Well, that's that's a nice talking point. Uh -huh. But if if uh, two or three Muslims in a Congress that has upward to 500 members can implement Sharia in America, in this political climate at this time, more power to them. They know that's absolutely uh, just a political talking point to scare people into supporting their nefarious anti-Muslim hateful agenda. Mm. And, and so uh, that's not even something to consider. Muslims go into politics to represent their constituents. And there is no Muslim with the possible exception of not even Ilhan Omar in Minneapolis who has a huge Somali community. Mm. But I'm sure the number of some non-Somali constituents are greater. There's no other than her where it might be close to being a significant Muslim uh, minority. There is no Muslim in Congress whose constituency comes close to being uh, a Muslim majority. There, there are small minorities. And so those Muslims are there to serve all of their constituents. And if their goal was Sharia, people aren't stupid. Mm. They would never have gained public office. They would never have succeeded in gaining public office. And so a Muslim going into politics should be mindful of the, the positive things they can do for their Muslim constituents, just as they're mindful of the positive they, things they can do for all of their constituents. And so their Muslim constituency, if they can help within the, the framework of our legal and political system to secure benefits from, from them, that's their job. And their job is also to do everything in their power to secure advantage and benefits in a positive way for their non-Muslim constituents. That's their job. And so that's what a Muslim in politics should be doing. So, so you mentioned a framework. I, Sorry, you got to go? We said an hour. We're, we're, well, we're, well not, we're not even at an hour. We're still 53 minutes in. Oh, okay. So yeah. let's keep going. Okay. So yeah. just, just 10 more minutes and we can close, inshallah. Uh, when you say framework, do we have a political framework when Muslims are in office? I, I, I think that, that we don't to our detriment. Okay. In other words, and when I say a framework, I'm not talking about a shari-based framework. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about just a framework where we've systematically assessed what, in terms of our Muslim constituents, what are the things within the framework of our legal, social, cultural, political system we should be working towards and we should be advocating for? But, and, but politics and, is uh, compromise. Well, if I, have I, to I thought I said within the framework of our social, cultural, religious, and, and political systems. So oh, not the Islamic one. I, I, I thought I said going in initially not in a shari based sense. Okay. Are you listening to no, me? No, no, I hear you. I apologize. Or, or do you have thoughts in your mind? That, no, no, go ahead. So I said within that framework, and we haven't thought about it. We Sometimes it becomes just, uh, alhamdulillah, the community is a lot more sophisticated. But in the past, we have to get out and vote. When? 
for in the presidential elections, in terms of the daily lives of Muslims and others in this country, that's probably the most inconsequential mm. election. Uh, n right now, we have, a, we have a democratic president. What does that do to advance the democratic agenda? It would be far better to have a, a, de a clear democratic majority in Congress than to have a democratic president in terms of advancing uh, the interests of the Democratic Party. In any case, uh, uh, okay, in the past, we have to vote. There's no thought, vote how? Strategically, should most of us be voting locally or just waiting for every four years for the presidential election and vote? And so we just, we have to vote. It's our civic duty. Uh, so everyone runs out to vote. Half of the people vote for the Democrat. Half vote for the Republican. At any level. Mm. Municipal, state, federal. We could have just stayed home. Because this yeah. half canceled out that half. Right. So everyone voted. They did their civic duty. With no thought, no plan, no agenda. And as a result, bam. They just neutralized each other. So we, we have to have uh, strategies. And this goes back to when I mentioned think tanks. We mm. have to have sophisticated institutions that are studying our situation as Muslims, studying our situation as a country, studying the various forces at work, the movements that are coming into play, and then on the basis of that analysis, determining what are the policy positions we should be advancing and advocating for? And they might not be positions we as Muslims put forth. They mm. might be put forth by, by Christian groups, by Jewish groups. And, but they are supportive of those things we have identified as priorities for our community. And so we, we have to begin to approach the whole issue of politi politics a lot more uh, strategically and a lot more uh, strategically uh, meaning to begin to look ahead mm. and to plan ahead and not just make uh, decisions based on uh, contemporary realities. So, so the mm. art of compromise in politics is well within the parameters of Islam. Uh, absolutely. And, but so those, can I those, take an those, comprom those compromises are governed by Islam or we're mm -hmm. Muslims, we're a religious community. So, so I can advocate, for example, if I'm running on the Democratic ticket, for the legalization of weed, if it means I can bring a Muslim into Congress. No, uh, it doesn't necessarily. You could advocate maybe on other grounds for the legalization of weed, but not legalization for bringing another Muslim in Congress. You might say, I advocate for the legalization of weed because 300,000 Mexicans have died over the course of the last uh two decades to determine who's going to sell weed in America. And so to prevent Gang preserving violence. preserving life has a priority over preserving intellect. Mm. And so to save those lives and to stop those drug-fueled wars, I'm advocating for the legalization of marijuana. But to say I'm advocate on the legalization of marijuana with no other consideration just because that's going to allow me to bring a Muslim into Congress. No, we can't think like that. Mm. Uh, we, have to, we have to think at a higher level and we have to think of the greater good and the greater good not just for Muslims, for everybody. Okay, can we, can we stretch that a bit and say uh, the, the LGBTQ rights, advocating for those while getting something else in return that benefits our community? That's, that would be a quid pro quo. I would say that's an unacceptable quid pro quo. We advocate for the right of everyone to freely practice what they believe in. That, believe, that, that benefits me. If that provides benefit for the LBTQI plus community, so be it. But I'm mm -hmm. advocating for the right of everyone to freely believe and practice what they want. I'm advocating for the firm implementation of the first amendment why because that protects my rights yeah. to to live practice and propagate my religion and if that also protects the rights of others then so be it 
but to specifically advocate for something that I believe uh, to be not only wrong but harmful for some political advancement, then I'm I'm just selling uh, my soul for some worldly gain. I hear you. We're at the top of the hour here, so we can go ahead and close. Do, do, do you have any closing remarks you want to end <clears throat> with? or? Yeah, I'll just say, you know, some things we discuss might be controversial. We're not trying to offend anyone or create mm-hmm. any controversies, but just trying to attain clarity on, on some of the things that are vexing and troubling many people in our community and in our country. And I think if we can be honest with each other and open with each other, then we have a much stronger position to talk with each other. But if we're not honest and open, then we're always guessing. And because we're guessing, uh, then we can be really, really offensive. Uh, but when everything's clear and, we, and, and hopefully balanced and not extreme, then there's there's room that's that's where you create the the place the space rather for real politics and genuine compromises to happen got it we'll go ahead and close with that then imam zaid i appreciate your time thank you for coming this was a fun one wallah um inshallah <laughs> whenever you you're ready for the next one just let me know Okay, uh, I can't wait for it. Three hours, so one exactly. down okay. and two to go. I appreciate it. Inshallah. Yeah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.